Welcome to a special edition of Breadth of Experience, a TDM Talks podcast. On this episode, we are joined by Damien Fernandez, Ben Gossack, and Joe Ellen Cherry, who will have a roundtable discussion on the equity market. They'll be chatting about recessionary fears, market cycles, and diverging trends in investing. Welcome to the conversation. Hey, Ben. Hey, Damien. Thank you so much for joining us today on uh, Breadth of Experience. We have some fascinating questions, uh, and I, th- I couldn't think of anyone else to post these questions to. So before we get into the nitty-gritty of the markets, what's topical, just take a step back. It's been a bit of a, a roller coaster ride the last couple of years in some sense, but lo and behold, the S&P 500 is at all-time highs, and uh, it seems there's still some disbelief or skepticism in the markets as to how we even got here. So what do you think? Uh, has happened? What's this? Uh, what is the reason for this disconnect in how we feel and what the numbers are saying? Maybe I'll just jump in first and say, I'd say a lot of where we are dates back to transitory inflation days. We had a Federal Reserve that went from zero interest rate policy, defied disbelief until how high they could go. So I don't think five and a half percent was in the original forecast or the revised forecast or the revised forecast. And then the other thing I'd say is that I think rightfully so people had a given the past cycles, Federal Reserve or other central banks have tend to over tighten. Um, I had one advisor that gave me a great line, which is they overcook the economy. And, you know, typically when you hear the word recession, you typically hide to sort of areas such as fixed income, um, other we'll say equity sectors like utilities, consumer staples. I think the difference um, and what our team and our process had picked up was that um, that view, while might have been right, was very consensus. And so some of the stuff that we were looking at had already effectively the prices for assets started to really sort of factor in that fear. And it wasn't that people were looking at the newspaper or they were seeing information, but a lot of times what I had heard, and I think, you know, Damien can reflect on it too. People would look at the uh, newspaper and they say, how could the economy not see all these speed bumps or potholes that are coming along uh, the road? And so Damien and I would say, how do you know that's not already factored into asset prices? If I could jump into this, and Ben's really highlighted this before, we're in, we're making new all-time highs, but the new all-time highs were, are just four weeks old. What I mean by this is that the market, the previous highs of the market were Jan 2nd, 2022. 4,800 was this big level of resistance. Everyone's so focused in the last 15%, you know, that started in November with, with the Powell pivot. But this this new bull market's actually been a long time coming. We've spent two years where you've had an amortization of, you know, earnings, where revenues have expanded, where we haven't gotten a recession. Maybe just on that recession thing. And, and Ben highlighted this in the opening comments, people were convinced we were going into recession and people were convinced that, you know, it was doom and gloom and hide in the bunker. And to be clear, last year, right, let's put some numbers to this. The unconditional probability, like in any given 12 months of actually being in a recession is about one in six, about 17%. When we started last year, it was, we were higher than that. I'd say three times higher, maybe 50% around there, right? So Ben and I were thinking a coin flip for a recession over the next 12 months. But the market was trading like it was a, a, a done deal, like it was 100% probably, like this is happening, you have to. And it, what's happened since, you know, 2022 is that you've had, or 2023, is that you've had increasing evidence 
that these that the fears of the recession are abating. Employment, you know, it's just the, one of the key variables has held up really well. Consumers' confidence started bottoming and now actually improving. Uh, we had SVB that didn't lead to a prolonged financial crisis. When you say SVB, you mean Silicon Valley Bank? Yeah, Silicon Valley Bank. Thanks. And so uh, we sit today at all-time highs, and like I guess my question is like, why not? That is, you both touched upon and it, a very important thing, and and it really ties to what we were marketing last year too on the road, right? Which was this idea of better than feared. So, while the rest of the street or the world was laser focused on this prediction of hard, soft, no recession, yes, no binary question, we were looking at something else. And what were you watching that gave you confidence to go slightly against the grain? I think some of it comes. I mean, definitely comes with the benefit of hindsight. Damien and I will always say you can always show up you know, midnight to a party and there's still a lot of party to, to be had. We don't have to show up at 7 p.m. and set up tables and put up decorations. So I'd say you know, a lot of it came with some of the benefit of hindsight. Some of the stuff that helped to illuminate what was being factored into asset prices was some of the relative strength analysis that we have done. But what really clued us in was many of the sectors in the market that tend to lead the next bull market rally. So this would be sort of like home builders or semiconductors, trucking stocks had made relative bottoms in 2022 and were starting to work and, and gain relative momentum to the S&P 500. And that made start to ask better questions and hone in as to why that was happening. Meanwhile, it read the newspaper, watch TV, talk to other people. And, you know, it was the message of, you know, just you wait and see, this is going to be very disastrous. So it wasn't so obvious, but it was just more of like, what was the market telling us? Asking better questions. And then that sort of led to the, the portfolios doing what they were doing. Yeah. And, you know, like I, I'd second Ben and say that our skill, our historical performance of the mandates are, you know, the alpha we've generated has always been predicated on this idea of like exploiting skepticism. When we pick stocks, we exploit skepticism on, you know, the, what the market doesn't believe how much cash these companies we own uh, are going to generate. When we talk about positioning, we were exploiting the skepticism that, you know, the, the you know, long live the economic cycle, right? That the economic cycle can continue. And uh, to Ben's point, you just, we're actually having a very conventional market cycle. I know that doesn't, that, that sounds, it doesn't seem like it when you, you know, you look at your, your X feed. That this is that it's like every single thing is like pandemonium and like this is new and unique. But you know, Ben talked about it. It's it's hard to think that you know we're on the cusp of a significant recession when home builders are rallying, when semi stocks are you know making new highs, when advertising like the you know the Googles and the Metas, the Alphabets are, are actually you know moving higher. All of the agencies, all these are early cyclical indicators. And then when you look at economic indicators. Like you'd look at, you know, Taiwanese exports or South Korean exports. Like South Korea makes, a, you know, great Netflix dramas, but that's not their export. Their exports are, you know, memory chips and Hyundai cars and component parts. And they were negative 10% last year and they're now plus 10. So you've had a, you know, 20 point move from the low. So these things are just consistent with early cycle behavior. And I think until the facts change, that's our, I think Ben, that's our view, right? Yeah, I tie it back to my engineering background. You know, a lot of times when you look at these relative trends, they're like Newton's first law. You know, an object in motion stays in motion until acted upon. And that could be an idiosyncratic event. That could be a macro event. I mean, one thing that is also a sign of a bull market is the correlation between stocks themselves start to drop. 
So the stocks are being driven for idiosyncratic reasons tied to their own business models, as opposed to, you know, there's a big macro fear, macro event, and all stocks act the same. So yes, we've had a, I'd say a below average type VIX environment, so volatility of the S&P, but the intercorrelation of stocks being this low would also tell you that, you know, there is good breadth and there's also, you know, just sort of confirms that Damien, I believe like the bull market didn't start in November of 23. We think this has been an 18 to 20 month bull market starting in, let's say the summer of 2022, which I think most people would be sort of surprised because that's not what they've been told. It's almost like the bull market may have started a while back, but it announced with big flashlights, I'm here in the last two months. And people well, that's are... because everyone was talking for the last 12 months about the magnificent seven. And like, you know, that's that, that's made it into the lexicon. And it's like, we, we want to stop talking about that. We own the magnificent seven. We That's, Damon, that's a fantastic point. And it's one of the questions I actually wanted to touch upon is this, kind of narrative of the Magnificent Seven and this perception that there's only seven stocks. And you touched upon this in your previous answer with the dispersion and the fact that you were starting to see this broaden out. So can you flesh upon this general trend and how people have missed it just by listening? Ben feels passionately about this, so I'm gonna he he's gotta kick this one off. Yeah. So I, I recognize, you know, we live in a, a market cap driven world. I recognize that, I guess with the exception of the Dow Jones and the Nikkei, big major indices that people follow in S&P 500, the biggest stocks matter and the bigger you are, the more you matter. And so I get how the, the math works in terms of saying, okay, the S&P 500 did X, at an NVIDIA, you know, an Apple, a Microsoft may have contributed those returns, but it does overlook and overshadow some amazing stock performance that we've seen in consumer discretionary that we've seen in the industrial sector, that we've seen in building materials, so that, you know, so building products and materials, that would be in the material sector. It's really overshadowed and it's gotten people looking left when they should be looking right. And so, you know, even last year, I think I counted 130 companies in the S&P 500 that beat the S&P 500. But all I'm told is that it's S&P 7 versus S&P 493. And look, people are busy and they rely on the newspaper and the media to fill in the gaps of what's going on. But in this situation, I think, Damien, you would agree with me, this has been very misleading. Yeah, completely. And I think people forget, right, the like Magnificent Seven comes from the Western. But the, the Western movie is actually, it's tragic. I don't want to give this away to, for everyone out there who, like, it's on Netflix, the remakes on Netflix, but it's not like all kumbaya and everyone, you know, drives off into the sunset watch the movie and so the magnificent seven is actually the now the magnificent six right because tesla's fallen off i've i've even heard four which just tells you like whoever came up with the moniker fang an incredible acronym because that lasted maybe seven to eight years but if you're going to keep changing the membership and the quantity of, of stocks within this so-called magnificent depending on the year and the month and it just tells me it wasn't really real Right, yeah, because Fang evolved to Fang Ma, then something else, and now we have Mag 7 to 6. I'll tell you this, right? The actual numbers being put up with the Magnificent 7 are tremendous. We had Meta report last week. We had Amazon report. The stocks were up 20 and 10 to 20% in the day. I think Amazon was up 7. It's because the numbers were astounding, and that captures the attention, right? It's like these big, like Meta adding $200 billion of market cap in a day, and the stock's still trading at 20 times earnings. Like, that's amazing. But you forget that 
I don't know the other stocks, the other 50, 45 stocks in our portfolio that have had blowout numbers that people don't notice. Like, Ben, do you have the, you know, I'm going to put you on the spot. Like, just you know, pick one or two. Again, I, we're in an industrial super cycle. The, and the, and again, this this gets overlooked. But just, I I know where you're gonna you're gonna go, Joseph. I, I, I know we're setting you up for the next question. But one thing I would say is many of the stocks that have made these massive moves, so let's say 200, 250% moves, it neglects the fact that many of those stocks with those big moves also had big declines. So if you fall by 50%, you have to rally by 100% just to break even. So many of these large cap stocks, that these storied stocks about how amazing they move and how could they move more, well, when you're down 70%, just rallying 250 like you know meta has done an amazing job they've turned around spending and perception but it just cleared its 21 high so if you were a long-term meta shareholder like you're just back to even and that also says a lot and when i first met damien this is probably going back to like 2013 first thing he said to me is we just don't have to lose money and that's the first rule of, of asset management active management and so, you know, look, I think Meta's done an amazing job or Amazon, but if you didn't have that 70% decline and you were in any other stock and you were, you know, keeping up with the market, you're still ahead of some of these storage stocks on a three or four year basis. A lot of times people miss the starting point of where it is coming from and just take the finish line and see, wow, what a story. And you unpacked a lot in that topic about just how there's a bit of an industrial super cycle and everything that you mentioned the 130 stocks across these sectors, they all it, it is striking that they're all kind of offensive parts of the economy. And you know, we we generally think in terms of cycles and secular themes. So what's driving this? So yeah, it's we'll, we'll get back to something I said at the start. Like we're having a very conventional recovery. When when you think about a conventional market cycle, right? The early stages of bull market, they're led by early cyclicals. So semis, home building, advertising, um, Staples, defensives, utilities are normally back of the bus. I, I yeah, I, I keep getting asked this question. People are like, why is energy and materials underperform? I mean, broad materials. I mean, you know, the Rio Tintos of the world. It's because those are late cycle cyclical sectors. They normally, when the economic cycle is established and people are comfortable and drawdowns in inventory, that's when those stocks do. This isn't. This is actually we're having a very conventional recovery in the sense of it, and I think pe people are almost. Um, I, I don't. I don't mean people. I just mean we're trying to you know look for things around the corner that just don't exist, and people are trying to imagine it first. And it's like no, I think we just you know the playbooks here. The playbooks always been there. It's just that people don't want to accept it. And you mentioned all these. What do you say? The fact that these are early stage offensive kind of indications. Does it have leg to become middle to late stage going forward? You know, when we think of that narrative or that framework looking ahead as investors. I mean, so far it has shown itself. So, you know, we're going to be two years into the U.S. home builders outperforming the S&P 500. Stunning, right? When the interest rates are at... Stunning. Stops, but yeah. it wasn't until, I'd say, halfway through last year when the price of the home builders surpassed their previous peak that people started to clue into the fact that maybe there was something there with the home builders. And then I think market participants are very good to then apply the rationales and the rationales all made sense, which is, you know, many people, especially in the US have 30 year mortgages. Those rates are around two to 3%. If they were to get repriced, their new mortgage rates can be seven to 8%. So resale activity obviously has dwindled. 
there is an undersupply of homes. And, you know, in terms of where you're going to get new build and new inventory and new supply, it's going to come from the home builders. So people then rationalize that must be why the home builders were working, but they had already missed, let's say a year and a quarter of the move. And so the move has continued since. Same with trucking. Like, again, that was one that had confused me the most, which was you know, how, how, if things are so bad, you would think like the stuff wouldn't ship on trucks. But again, that one also has almost two years of lag in it. And then same on the industrials where we say there's a super cycle. You know, a lot of that I'd say is, is also policy driven. So there was the Inflation Reduction Act, which had a lot of incentives tied to, sort of, let's say, clean energy projects. We've also had the CHIPS Act. So try to rebuild Taiwan Semi and Phoenix and Europe and Japan. And then often forgotten was bipartisan bill, which was the Infrastructure Act, which also hasn't had much spending to be, to be drawn on. And so, I mean, even if you were to build a fabrication facility, you need to build rows and pipelines and clean rooms. And so we own a stock that does employee equipment or uniform rental. So imagine you have to have perfectly clean uniforms to go build these chips or doing this high-tech biotech stuff. So it, it's, you know, there's a ton of infrastructure that goes towards these things. And so that's being reflected in the stock prices. So yeah, it seems while investors were so focused on the private sector contraction, a lot of these fiscal measures were actually driving real tangible growth underneath. And and this is reflected in the performance. It's just, we're now finally seeing. And you said something, Joe, right at the start, like, you know, when do we know we start moving into, you know, the mid or later cycle? Like we just started the early cyclical, like you need in the semis, you need to start seeing inventories, you know, get replenished. In home building, you need houses to be built and people talking about supply. It's like, oh, I now have my choice. It's, we're, it's, we're in very early days before we get to, you know, hey, should I be thinking about, uh, like, you know, adding a lot more pharma and defense and utilities in my portfolio? That is a great point that you bring up. And something that I generally have been receiving from the field as well is, is this idea of have we missed the tech? Uh, was is is the rally already done, and should we be thinking about defense? And to someone who's still skeptical about uh, technology and some of these big picture trends like AI, cloud, that is actually driving dollars to these businesses. What would your answer actually be? I mean, usually when Damon and I get that question, that's usually coming from a position where someone's already sitting in the defense. And what we'll say is, you know, we don't have a crystal ball. Our products and our and our portfolios are driven by secular trends and cycles. And so it looks like we're early days on certain cycles. One thing, Joe, that you and I worked on recently was just looking at sort of investor cash levels and then tying that to the market. And so, you know, we went back to, let's say, the dot-com bubble. When I joined this industry, someone had told me that, you know, the last dollar is purchased at the peak of the cycle. So it's like, I'm all in, I'm, I'm chasing this rally. And that that typically ties with, let's say, highs in the S&P when everyone is like, you know, we're going to the mood. And then the last dollar is sold typically at market bottoms where, you know, people are like, I just want out. I'm tired of this. You know, people said buy the dip, but it just keeps dipping. So I'm out. And we saw a lot of people cash out last year. You know, we had a, a 5 6% GIC. We saw a lot of structured notes with a lot of yield and downside protection. And a lot of that, 
you know, we haven't seen the peaking cash yet in terms of the silence, but I, I think, again, Damien and I would argue we've seen a bottom in the stock market. So look, we don't know where any asset price is going and we've never said that that's our, our area of expertise, but it does tell you that when bull markets do start, they can last for several years and there's still a wall of cash that has not participated. And that is a very powerful liquidity tools, right? Yeah. For us, it's like, like right now we're sitting on this podcast, Joseph, and we're answering questions. And by the way, for everyone on this podcast, this is Ben and I, we have no, and we have, Joe's hasn't hit us with the questions before. And so this is raw, unfiltered. And as, as we're thinking through this, I, I think, you know, just like keeping the big picture themes in place, inflation's peaked. It might, you know, we might have, it might start picking again, but just given how the compositions, it's going to take, we'll, we'll wait to see the evidence. The Federal Reserve has finished raising rates. They stopped last year. We're in the early part of a cycle. You see that in the PMIs. You see that in the export activity. The market just took out the previous highs it made two years ago. I, I haven't, like none of this, by the way, is Damien's opinion or Ben's opinion or Joseph's opinion. If we just were armed with those facts, and you're sitting, you and you're sitting all in GICs, and you're probably thinking the Federal Reserve or the Bank of Canada is more likely to cut in the next six months than raise oh, rates. I think, yeah. Like the question is, what? Like it, it. I think it's almost like self-explanatory. Like, what should you do? I. <laughs> I'd also say new highs is not a bad thing. Every time you get to a new high, and I think you know the Nikkei is approaching a high, and they say, okay, is this it? Because the last time we had a high, obviously we know what happened on the other side. I'd say Damon and I have found more interesting ideas looking at the new 52-week high list than we ever had digging around the new 52-week low, <laughs> week low list. There's a reason why stocks are making 52-week uh, lows, but the, the amount of ideas, and uh, again, in any market, whether it's an up market or down market, trying to understand what's working and why is it working, those stocks tend to, to be the ones that you know, win keep breaking new highs, right? And if you're every time hesitant, it's a new high, you'll effectively never invest. Like, look, we, you know, there's first, like ultimately it, it comes down to, you know, where do we see dislocation in people's forecasts for cash flow? And you talked about this, Joe, earlier. You said, you know, like everyone's talking about technology and think, I don't know, I, maybe I'm speaking for Ben, but aren't you, aren't you tired of talking about NVIDIA? Yeah, I mean... Or like Broadcom or KLA Tedcore. This is where narratives can be very powerful. So you know, we identified that semiconductors made their bottom in, let's say, November of 22. Yes, that does coincide with the S&P making their bottom. I understand how everyone thinks it's all AI, but I'd say even if AI and, chat and sort of large language models and all this type of stuff that exists, those stocks were going to begin their next leg of cycle because we had overbuilt capacity, assuming that demands for technology from COVID would have lasted forever. And so they overbuilt. And that is, uh, that is a signature that's very characteristic to that industry. And so we had seen earnings collapse. We'd seen stock prices get smashed. And so that was the time where all that bad news had been factored in and we were st the stock prices were starting to look to the other side before the earnings had bottomed. Then you add in all this extra stuff. Now, the only thing that I know about AI for certain is that people need chips. I don't know what jobs are going to be removed, added. I've been you know, promised so many things with you know, other sort of trends. You're, you're more skeptical about this. But the only thing I know is right now, you know, there's there's an infrastructure build and there's a game afoot. 
And so, you know, that, that's, that's all I know on that. But the rest will come when it comes. It's, we, we sometimes need to take things one step at a time, right? Oh, I'm super excited about it, though. Hear this, actually, yeah. So, okay, so uh, my own view is that for everyone, like, whether it's ChatGPT or another language, like a large language model they're using, probably try and integrate it in your life. Like, I try and use ChatGPT like, every day. And, like, jokingly on our team, our, our head of equities was on a vacation. I asked ChatGPT to integrate a picture of uh, Miami Vice, uh, you know, uh, with uh, with him, and it literally it built an image from its own conception of like, and, and it's it's kind of amazing. I'm I'm always astounded. So in my own life, just whether it's planning vacations or this organizing tasks or even helping with writing, I will use ChatGPT as almost like a digital assistant. Like you can see the improvement over the last, you know, few, I started on GPT one and you know where we are today, and you can kind of see the improvement. So I think it will be transformational, but it's early days and. You know, people are talking about just the, the chips and Ben's right. Like there's a shortage of GPUs to help enable these like LLMs to process. Well, I'm excited about, you know, like how does our conventional businesses use ChatGPT or not ChatGPT or just AI to improve their process, increase the customer value proposition, reduce costs. Like that's, that's all going to be, and that's ahead of us. I think the title of the podcast is perfect. It's breadth of experience, you know, breadth of experience, breadth of viewpoints, different backgrounds. And yet we all try to get to that investment decision, putting our heads together. And and there's been a fascinating discussion, but I do want to change track a little bit. And looking ahead this year, I'm fairly certain it'll be a, a top question in many investors and uh, just ordinary citizens worldwide is a lot of the world is going to elections. One big country down south, the U.S., of course, uh, being the most talked about. Uh, you will hear all ranges of opinions as to whether it matters, or it doesn't matter. Or why do we have uh, two geriatric, uh, are these the best candidates that are con as dynamic as the U.S. could present? Uh, just level set for the audience, how you approach this election cycle, does it matter to the markets in the first place? And what ultimately matters for equities for us? I'd say first and foremost, especially for our portfolios, what matters to us are what human beings are doing and looking at their trends and their activities and then looking across value chains and trying to understand the companies that best exploit that. That will not change whoever's in charge of the, the White House, the Senate, for the Congress, whichever state governor. So that that doesn't change and that's enduring. And, and and that has survived many different election cycles or budget impasses, all that type of stuff. Now, should someone come in and then change the rules of the game, then I then that's when Damien and our team of analysts and our other co PMs would sit and figure out what is does that impair, does that help? But what I would caution and refrain people from doing Yes, uh, election cycles can get quite emotional and we can make rash decisions. And I also find the reaction from stocks are always something that you may not have expected. So you know, right now you have a President Biden, he was supposed to come in on this green wave. But when I look at the stock market and some of the stocks that have done the worst have been tied to clean energy and green energy, they're trading, they're, they're the ones that are fighting the new 52 week lows. And some of the stocks that you would think that would be an anti, the, the inverse, so, you know, going after, let's say, conventional energy or sort of, you know, heavy industrials are the ones that are in that new 52-week list. So that's where I'd say, you know, I, I'm already seeing that in my inboxes. People are making the blue basket and the red basket. 
And and that's great. You know, it's good content and it gets people talking. But to, for anyone to then say, you know, I need to sort of, you know, turn over my portfolio. I, again, you know, the discipline for us has always been, how does it affect the cycular trend? Does it affect the cycle or does it make a new, a new cycle? And that's all I'll be thinking about. The, 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 like, oh, you know, Ben said it uh, quite correctly, but like implicit in what you're saying, right, is that, and I hope we convey this, is this level of humility we have on our team. For us to reposition our portfolio in anticipation of, and by the way, it's not just the U.S. election, right? Europe is heading to the polls, uh, you know, a few, India, but they, they, it's, it's pretty well understood about, you know, favorites and stuff, but just think about this. For us to, you know, reposition our portfolio in anticipation of an election outcome, we have to A, believe with, you know, utmost confidence that we know who's going to win. We know the hit rate on that. Like, I'm better at picking stocks than picking electoral winners. The And then the secondly, we have to Ben's point, right? We have to believe after we know who's going to win, we have to be able to anticipate their policy prescriptions, what they're going to do, what's going to be the focus point. And then we have to anticipate how the stock's going to react. That's like, that's like three variables, three degrees, you know, three variables, each with their own standard errors that we're compounding. It's like, well, why don't we just wait to see who wins and let's see what the, you know, policy prescription is and then make a decision before we... Let's see what the American but, people say. But, right? you know, that sounds like a parlay. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, it's it's crazy when you watch live sports that that seems to be all they want to talk about. But effectively, what Damien has described here is a parlay. And the reason why parlays have big payoffs is to be right about each individual. I think maybe it was a six-part parlay, if I if I was listening to you correctly. So, I mean, I took a stats class back in the day, but you know, when you multiply the probabilities of you being right, six ways through, that, that's why the payoff's big, because the odds that you'd be right about all of them are, are, are very slim. And every time you compound another decision and another bet, probability of success already you know diminishes itself. I don't doubt it. I feel like FanDuel at some point is going to have election parlays. <laughs> They'll be shut down before that. They'll probably be shut down before that. But no, this this is uh, this is an interesting year in general because you have so many awesome developments and interesting developments in the markets. You have the U.S. economy uh, and the U.S. equity market on fire. At the other end, you also have some interesting stories like Japan that has risen after like three decades. You have question marks in China that is now in in the doldrums. And as global equity managers. How are you taking stock of the world uh, with these different diverging trends happening in different parts? Uh, I mean, and Damien's been really big on, on Japan, so I think he should go first on that. Yeah, well, like, uh, I'm excited about Japan for just two reasons. And, and I think, and, and then, you know, we can talk about China right after. But on Japan, you have two things going for it, right? One, we talked about we're in the early part of a cycle. And, uh, you know, you know the, the Occam's razor approach, like Japan is an early cyclical. Japan, like Japan makes machinery parts, semiconductor parts. It, it makes automobile components. It doesn't make oil and gas, and it doesn't, you know, drill for materials, which are late cyclical parts. So, is it a surprise that the Japanese market is, you know, moving on with its beta to the economic cycle? That's consistent. What's also happening in Japan is you're actually having true corporate reform, where the Tokyo Stock Exchange and uh, changes for savings rates for Japanese households are incentivizing both corporates to be to increase distributions to improve our returns on invested capital and ROEs but also into incentivizing households in Japan to increase their ownership of stocks so all of these things like you have you know and we could spend a whole podcast on this but 
there is obviously the cyclical beta component to the cycle that's helping move the market. But there's also a structural piece where fundamentals and cash flow generation and returns on capital and shareholder distributions are all in favor of an equity investor. And both those two things, you know, make me excited. Sounds like the land of rising opportunity. The land yeah. of rising, and and the bet, I don't know, on China, like what, what are we doing on China? I would just say we're very macro aware in our portfolios, but we don't, it's very difficult. And, and again, there's many different ways to make money in the market. I would say it's very difficult for our style to then make, you know, apply that then to individual, you know, securities that we own. So a lot of the stuff that's happening in China, people have been talking about for the last 10, 15 years. There are a lot of things that people have issues in terms of social security and entitlements in the U.S. And they've been talking about that for the last 20 years. And at some point, that will be an issue that we'll all be discussing on a future podcast. And so, you know, these issues can take a, a long time before they end up showing. And you know, right now, that's people have now focused on on the stocks, and then the composites and indices across China are now down. The other thing I'd say again, when it comes to our global portfolios, the way that we select our stocks is not in the case of Japan. There's a specific secular trend, you know, and then we've tied on you know into certain securities that benefit from that. But we're not investing in Europe because it's like Europe's cheap. That to me has always been very hot money and hot money comes in and hot money comes out. And every couple of years, people will say, this is the country. And then everyone piles in. Uh, and then you see a whole bunch of sort of uh, ETFs they then get built around that. And so for us, again, our global portfolio would be like using, you know, again, looking at secular trends, looking at the cycles, finding the best stocks. And if those best stocks end Happen up to be Sweden or Denmark or Japan or Indonesia, so be it. That's where we're going to you know, invest in those countries. Yeah, and I think you know, to Ben, you, know, you talked about China, and Ben talked about this. When you look at the fundamentals of these Chinese companies, there's no acceleration. There is write downs. There's concerns that the property sector there is a disaster. I, and so, I, why would we? You know, Ben talked about you know looking. Why would we looking at fifty-two week lows? They're like they're, those fifty-two week lows are for a reason. And, and this, and if if our investment style is quality growth and cash flow underappreciation and compounding, we're just not seeing it. It doesn't matter if it was if if the country is called China, the individual securities that comprise it are not are not showing us signs of that. That's amazing that you tied in the thought process of cycles just on a global scale. It's not just a local thing that we look on. We want our stocks to be exposed to those teams. You know, they win across, and that is a perfect way to kind of segue to a last section. And, and this being uh, an equity podcast, I want a couple of questions uh, just to get a sense uh, of how you think of businesses, which is rapid fire very quickly. Both of you, what kind ben of- Ben goes first. Yeah, what kind of business model do you like? And what is a good example of a good representation of that business model? So I have this line where I don't like to pick winners. That's hard. I like to pick companies that always win. So the business model, the setup that I'm always striving for is that classic pick and shovel play. So you you had the gold boom in California, and so you could have made bets on which which it, which mine is gonna which be, mine yeah. is gonna be the one to pay off. That's 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 really hard. That's really hard to do. And the people that made out a fortune with you know were selling blue jeans and the picks and the shovels, right? And so for us, again, you know, whether it's in the semiconductor industry, whether it's in, you know, the industrial sector, what consumer, you know, we're all, I'm always focused. So my favorite models 
are the ones where, you know, they win, you know, no matter who is the actual or declared winner. So that's my favorite type of business to, to sort of strive and seek out for. Even the champion behind the scenes, powering it all. Not I should I should have gone first because Ben took the line. <laughs> the uh no, but he's right. Like we want like we want to be, you know, agnostic. Like if you need more semiconductor capacity and more fabrication facilities, we want to buy semicaps because they don't they don't care if it's Intel or Micron or any or you know Taiwan semi the other business model we like so there is actually two and and like Ben like Ben got first pass and he, he and you that gave is, me the first pass I know <laughs> I know the but the other one we like is that we love reoccurring cash flow capital light business models you know think think Costco's or membership fees think Microsoft Microsoft or every single employee having to pay a subscription to, to access these like capital light business models with reoccurring fees that are growing every year in established modes where they're oligopolistic and like these are just high returning businesses like they're like you know keep calm and compound on so both those two actually and, and if you look at think of our portfolio that's 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 the bulk of it right it's not a hey we have you know like this really great idea this beaten up stock that's going to you know it's like no, it's at 52 week lows yeah that, that's, <laughs> and that's again not to say that 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 isn't a very valid approach i agree yeah, and sorry. so i think you know especially when you know you manage mandates it, it really has to sort of you have to have a certain philosophy and and this has been our philosophy and, and it's worked for us but like i said there's a, a million different ways that people can approach making money and they all can work that is uh, that is the best thing. that's what i actually find very fascinating about the markets you can be in the same company and there's at tdam itself there's 10 variety of different strategies all with the same goal of ultimately delivering on their client expectations and to end with two rapid fire questions what was this what got you into the stock market what was that moment uh, or book basically yeah what was that book that got you hooked into the stock market so Damien can go first on this oh I just that's I don't there's no moment I absolutely love what we do because it's competitive it is like every single day Ben and I like like I, I don't I don't know about Ben I'm pretty sure about it I haven't really I haven't I haven't quizzed his wife but I'm pretty sure the first thing he does when he wakes up in the morning Probably before he says hello to his wife, as he checks the score at his on our mandates, he will pull up like what performance was the night before. And every single day, we're focused on we have a process. We implement that process with discipline, and over time, that process leads to you know leads to separation. And it, it's one of the few, and I've, I've been in this for twenty. I've been in this for twenty years. It's been one of the few professions where, you know, you can say you're good. I'm really good at like it's no. There's a report card. Like, there's, there's a, a report YTD. card attached. Yeah, there's a report card attached to you. And I love the, like most, like I, I played sports growing up. It just, it's competition and it's competition, but not just, it's based on skill and talent and the, you know, the repetitive process of doing it every day that gets you there, right? Like it's practice. I get that. So sadly, Damien is correct. And the last thing he I does, look he at. Does do, <laughs> yeah. uh, and the first thing. <laughs> and the last thing I look at is, you know, where, what stocks are doing in, in the overseas markets and then. The first thing I do is I look at what stocks are doing in the European markets and how they close in the Asian markets. I'd say, look, I'd say for me, you know, especially for you, because you made from aerospace engineering to finance. What was that that got you here? So, you know, my origin story was never I, you know, read the stock tickers in the local newspaper. And then I, you know, I told my mom and 
my dad to open up a, a, a brokerage and, and pick those stocks. And so I should give you the Intelligent Investor by Warren Buffett or? Yes, that, that, that's a future gift you could give me. Um, so so that that's not my origin story. And so, I, you know, that was, you know, especially when I was interviewing for jobs, like that's what I heard from everyone. And I was like, that's not me and I have to be authentic. I only discover what a mutual fund is when I'm working as an aerospace engineer and our company had a defined contribution pension plan. And that's when I found out that there is this, you know, portfolio manager that looks after a fund and they know about stocks and they, and they pick stocks. And that's when I was like, wow, now I know what I want to be when I grow up. Talk about a rabbit hole, huh? That, that, that has shaped your path and made you who you are today. This is, uh, this is interesting. And that's, that's, that's the amazing part about working in, in financial services at the end of the day, you know, the stock market. Doesn't matter what your background is in the work you all can make it and uh and look that that's something i remember early on you know sitting with bruce cooper and you know he was saying you know the the people that, that do well in this industry have curiosity and people will say well i'm curious but it's it's the curiosity you know going back to you know why were we doing different things and what the consensus was saying and it, we were curious as to why home builders were relatively outperforming or, or again why tracking stocks were outperforming and so I think anyone can come into this industry with any background. If anything, the more diverse backgrounds are there, I think that's great for an organization and for portfolios. And then it goes back to that curiosity to ask questions. Why are certain things doing this and why are certain things doing that? And then you know, tying it back to our process. Yeah, you know, uh, like this, you, you said this, right, Joe? Like this is called breadth of experience. If, if I could summarize, you know, our just process and our, our you know, our historical delivery of of helping clients achieve their goals it's we kind of try and do two things really well we try and be truly intellectually curious like when something doesn't like when something is you know yeah. doesn't add up like why keep digging do the research and we try and remain really humble about things like you know about our uh, about our skill set about we're always we're not looking for about what's you know what's going right it's like what do we own that's going wrong and why and what can we do and how we how should we think about this like what's happening in the world that allows us to, you know, gives us an edge. Anyway. No, that's, that's, it's amazing that we ended up with the home builders. That's a perfect way to tie in with the curiosity. And gentlemen, this has been an amazing conversation. I think a lot of great points that our listeners can hopefully take in and probably even incorporate in some of their personal investing activities, even if that is the case. Ben and Damien, again, thank you so much for joining us. And with that, we'll sign out of TDAM. All right. Always a pleasure. Thank you. The information contained herein is for information purposes only. The information has been drawn from sources believed to be reliable. The information does not provide financial, legal, tax, or investment advice. Particular investment, tax, or trading strategies should be evaluated relative to each individual's objectives and risk tolerance. This material is not an offer to any person in any jurisdiction where unlawful or unauthorized. These materials have not been reviewed by and are not registered with any securities or other regulatory authority in jurisdictions where we operate. Any general discussion or opinions contained within these materials regarding securities or market conditions represents our view or the view of the source cited. Unless otherwise indicated, such view is of the date noted and is subject to change. Information about the portfolio holdings, asset allocation, or diversification is historical and is subject to change. This document may contain forward-looking statements or FLS. FLS reflect current expectations and projections about future events and or outcomes based on data currently available. This document may contain forward-looking statements or FLS. FLS reflect current expectations and projections about future events and or outcomes based on data currently available. 
Such expectations and projections may be incorrect in the future as events which were not anticipated or considered in their formulation may occur and lead to results that differ materially from those expressed or implied. FLS are not guarantees of future performance and reliance on FLS should be avoided. TD Global Investment Solutions represents TD Asset Management Inc. and Epic Investment Partners Inc. Both entities are affiliates and wholly owned subsidiaries of the Toronto Dominion Bank.